Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I am Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes Revisited. This week, we are going to be hearing from one of the most important voices of a generation, the author Zadie Smith. But first of all, we're going right back to the first series of changes with our third ever episode and a man called Jamar Jonas. Barely a man. He was 18 when I interviewed him. And I got to know about Jamar Jonas through a friend of mine who was telling me all about mentoring and told me the story of how he met his mentee, Jamar Jonas, in the process. Jamar has such a uh, remarkable story. And I chased him for a while, just trying to pin him down to speaking to me for an hour. And I remember eventually getting that hour with him. I think it was about 11 or 11.30 on a Monday in, in the evening. And um, it was very dark outside and I was in the rave shed talking to him and he was on his phone and it was just such a brilliant conversation. It's still one of my favourite ever episodes of Changes, this episode that you're about to hear a little bit of. So when Jamar was 16, his brother Michael was fatally stabbed to death. And since that night, he has been trying to change the world, advocating for youth-led solutions to violence. He's gone on to mentor students at schools in Lambeth and to provide consultancy for City Hall, the Metropolitan Police and Google about youth culture and violence prevention. He's also a rapper, making tracks about the reality of life for young people in London. I wanted to speak to someone about knife crime who has experienced the effects of it personally, but is also on a level with the people who are carrying knives on a daily basis. And because of that, Jamar has a voice that you just don't really hear much in the news or in the papers when we talk about knife crime. So he talked in detail about the reality of knife crime, why he thinks it's so normal for people growing up in certain parts of London and how he thinks it could be changed. He also shares how he's been trying hard to change it, including going to Parliament many times with his mentor Kieran. So the bit we're going to revisit is a part of the podcast where Jamar discusses meeting his mentor, but first he revisits in detail the night his brother died and its impact on his life and those around him. I've heard a big change for me as a kid would have been the passing of my older brother. Talk me through that day. What happened? So I come back from secondary school Thursday evening. So I come back from secondary school. I can't lie to you. I was looking forward to my PS4 because there was one game in particular that I loved to play on that PS4, which is Gran Turismo Sport. Around, let's say around, I think, what, six, seven-ish. My dad came in from work and then he whizzed back out again and I was like hmm that's kind of strange I'm just playing my game playing my game playing my game then my mum comes in the house at like eight something and then she's like to me 
have you heard what happened to your brother? And I'm asking, what do you mean? Like, what were you on about? Because I don't know. I actually don't know. Like, what were you on about? What happened? She says, ah, oh, he got stabbed. I said, huh? And I dropped my controller. And I was like, huh? Say that again. And she's like, yeah, um, he got stabbed. And apparently um, he died at the scene. So then what I did, literally, I forgot I was even playing my game. What I did, I dropped my controller. I flung on any any tracksuits I could find. Just flung on tracksuits. And I said, cool, wherever it happened, I'm going there now. Like as in, like, now, 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 now. And my mum was like, no, listen, like, calm down. Da, 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 da. These times, I'm already annoyed in it because it's like, I had one or two thoughts at the time on how things went down. And yeah, I went up to the scene and that, uh, and it didn't really sink in until I got there. Reason being was because I never really like, you know how they say, hearing it is one thing, but seeing it is believing it. Do you get it? Yeah. So it's only when I got there, I was like, okay, this is, this is, this is serious. Like where like the, the, the whole area is called the nothing. Like, like this is, this is, this is serious. You get me? So I'm like, I'm thinking to myself now, cool. This is apparently real. Yeah. I don't want to believe it's real, but apparently it's real. It's only when I see the tent. You know that like the foren- the white tent that the forensics um team put around the body and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm looking and I'm thinking to myself, cool, there's someone in there. I don't reckon it's him though, but there's somebody in there. Cause they're not gonna put a tent around the air. You get it? So it's only when like, cause I'm seeing like um some more of the immediate family pulling up to the scene. And then I'm seeing people crying. I'm seeing people looking like, I'm seeing people just looking down. You get me? Like the whole, it's like, it's almost like the whole world changed on me in a sense. I was at the scene that night until about what? Two, three o'clock next morning? Like, yeah, it was nuts. So you stayed at the scene. So so your brother got taken away and you stayed where he passed. Yeah. Like, we we weren't allowed to actually go to the actual spot where it happened, but, like, we weren't near enough to it, in a sense. Yeah. And who was we? Who Were you with your mum and dad? So, or were you with your mom, friends? dad, sister, brothers. One thing that really does surprise me is the fact that it happened in the first place because me and him share, like, me and him are kind of similar in the sense where... We don't trouble nobody. Do you get it? Yeah, I do. Did you feel anger? Like, uh, surely when something like that goes on, right? Yeah, of course. Definitely. Like, I can't lie to you. I was fuming. I'll be honest with you. Like, I was fuming. I can't lie. I was actually fuming. Like, all kinds of emotions were going through my head. Like, and you have to think to yourself, like, cool. This has happened. I can't do anything about it directly to bring it back. I might be able to do something that might make me feel as if I've got my own back, but then at the same time, it's not going to do me any justice. It's not going to do him any justice. Do you get it? Have the people who attacked your brother, Mm. have they ever been caught? Yeah, one or two of them got caught still, but obviously 
people are getting smarter out here. And I can't lie to you, getting away with murder is becoming easier still. I can't lie to you. Because, like, the criminals are getting smarter as well. And they're understanding how to get rid of evidence. Do you get it? Yeah. I can't lie, this whole knife crime thing. So when police come looking for an alibi or whatever, or looking for evidence against them, it's hard to find. Do you get it? So, yeah. Do you forgive them? Hmm, that's a good question. I can't lie, it's a good question. Um, I'm not going to hold the, the maddest grudge here and say, like, yeah, they killed my brother, so I'm just going to hate them forever. Do you understand? Were you and your brother close? Were you friends? Yeah, we were good still. We were good, we were good. Like, kick back, chill out, play PlayStation. Like, we were good. We were good. We were good. We never had. We never actually ever like. We never actually fell out ever at all. What was the age difference? Um, the age difference was two years, pretty much. Do you ever think about what what he would be up to now, or how how he would be feeling about you now, kind of being so proactive about trying to help people learn about what's going on? I can't lie to you. I think about it a lot. Still, I'll be honest. I think about it a lot because it's like. Because of the bond we had, we'd probably be doing something together right now. Do you get it? So we'll be working on something. And now I won't be able to see, or the rest of the family won't be able to see what he would have come come out to be. How are your family dealing with it? You you seem to have dealt with it in, in such a positive way. I would say we're still grieving in a sense. We will always be grieving to, like, to some extent because obviously we've lost one of our family members. Do you get it? Once one of them go, it's not the same. Do you understand? But it's not as present. Like you, like it's not shown as much. Do you understand? Yeah. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What did your mentor mean to you? Fam, my mentor means the world to me. Are you nuts? I will say that with my whole chest. Without my mentor, listen, my mentor, yeah, Karen Frapper, yeah, that brother there, yeah, that guy there, is a legend, yeah? People do not understand the importance of conversation. I swear to you, people don't understand that one conversation could possibly change someone's life. Kieran, like, he's been mentoring me for God knows how many years, like, we've known each other for at least five years. At least five years. 
And I feel like the addition of a mentor, yeah, to my life personally, it's a blessing, isn't it? Because it's like you've got someone that's not your parents and not your brethren's that you can chat to and you can flow in and out of that professional and informal level of conversation. Having a mentor almost helps you figure yourself out. Do you get it? Totally, totally, yeah. You have your day-to-day life. You do what you do in your day-to-day life, but you don't really think about yourself as such. You just think about what you're doing and what the aim is, and you don't really take the time out to understand yourself. I feel like you having a mentor helps you understand yourself. So did Kieran, your mentor, did he help you in the process of getting over your brother's death? Yeah, definitely. I can't speak for anyone else here, but for me personally, my mentor personally, he's like an older brother to me in a sense where it's like, obviously he's coming from a more mature level than me because of the generation gap. That almost helps keep me in check as well. If you think about it, humans ain't perfect, isn't it? Like, if you want to react and do something, you will react and do it. But then if you've got something behind you or someone behind you to kind of help you in terms of your emotion and how you think about a situation or might view a situation, because you think about it, if I say something to you, you may disagree with me, but then at the same time, that conversation has now opened my mind to other possibilities. Do Do you get what I'm saying? Totally. So how did you find him? Oh, um, it was through like a educational club that I used to go to called Inter University. Yeah, I've been with since year five. I mean, like even just with knife crime, mm. like the prolificness of it around London mm. and obviously other cities in the UK. But just when you even think about the reality of it, you know, seeing someone get stabbed, knowing someone mm. getting stabbed, feeling enough fear that you feel like you have to carry a knife when you leave the house. Mm. All those things are so deeply traumatic. Mm. And if you're experiencing them as a kid, then how are you supposed to be in a space where you are have any headspace to learn? Mm, true. And you know what's nuts? There's, there's, there's kids bringing knives into schools. Like, there's kids bringing kitchen knives into schools. Like, I think sometimes I feel like people actually take it for a joke. Like, this is real. Like, it's, it's, it's real, real. Like, people, like kids, like young kids are bringing knives into schools because they don't feel safe. Do you get it? Like, how can you be in the institute where you're supposed to be learning, but even in that school building, you might not feel safe? Like, and it's crazy because, like, it's a complete different setting to when you're back out of school. Then the school saying, well, we have rules and policies that you need to follow. And if we're telling you to do your work, you need to do your work. But if the headspace ain't there for them to do their work, they're not doing nothing. And then, boom, they get kicked out, end up in a pool, and then more time, the prudes don't have the resources they need to actually support the kids that really need it. Bearing in mind, some kids are getting kicked out of school for some silly reasons anyway. I'm going to get onto that. I spoke to some people in Parliament about that already. I could tell they didn't like it. But, you know, it is where it is. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, no, I mean, I did I did see a thing, a little BBC video where there was a, they were kind of interviewing a community of people in Haringey, mm. um... And there's all sorts of people there from, uh, you know, community workers to NHS staff to social workers to teachers. And the teacher Mm. was basically saying that the exclusion of young black kids from school, Mm. they they are getting excluded quicker and faster 
than white kids that there's a kind of deep deep racist thing and like there needs to be more empathy towards kids and and they shouldn't be excluding them as quickly mm. If you're gonna talk about race, yeah. If we're gonna talk about race, cool. Let's be realistic, yeah. Cool. Check this now. Yeah, fucking let's now. go. Check the levels now, yeah. Cool. So most of the black people in this country, yeah, nine times out of ten, if you look at their family history, they migrated from another country to here, right? Now, most of them came here seeking a better life. Yeah, that's the main reason they ended up here in the first place. If you look at where most black people are and live. It's mostly in the poorer areas due to a lack of opportunity provided. If you have a lack of opportunity within the areas that you're in, what can you do? And how will you be feeling to know that you're in a situation where you don't really have opportunity to do anything else? This is a, this is a prime example of why some may end up drug dealing. So there's nothing else here for them. What do you expect them to do? They're trapped. Exactly. For you to believe that someone from the ends with a lack of opportunities, yeah, for you to believe that they're supposed to find it easy to move on from everything that's happening around them and what they know to something a bit more professional, it's dumb. If all they know is what they see around them, what can you do and what can they do? Though I feel like a contributing factor to me not going down that road is the fact that I've actively been, what's the word? Okay, I don't want to say I've been actively searching for stuff, but like I said to you before, I'm a dreamer, innit? Like, the stuff I want to achieve in life isn't, what your average might want to achieve. And what do you want to achieve? Oh my God, if I start, we'll be here all night, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Jamar uh, for providing us with one of the most impactful episodes of Changes in terms of the change we want to and have yet to see. And I can tell you very happily that Jamar is someone who I've stayed in touch with all this time. We speak often and uh, the main basis of our conversations is him rapping down the phone to me his songs uh, of which there are many and he is so prolific in creating the good news is he's got a deal so make sure you look him up his artist name is Rippa R-I-P-P-A and go back and listen to the full episode so you can get the full picture of Jamar's story as well if you like this conversation then you may also like to listen to Big Zoo another rapper who was a youth worker and is doing incredible things in the world of television now double BAFTA award winning too alright another highlight for you now um, and it comes from the brilliant best selling award winning author that is Zadie Smith where to even begin about Zadie Smith she's one of the most celebrated and iconic voices of a generation um, when she kind of came out with her debut novel in her 20s which won lots of awards it was called White Teeth Um, She was remarkable in the world of publishing for being A, so young, and B, a black woman, talking about real-life experiences of growing up in north-west London. She writes so much about that area where she grew up, in Kilburn and in Wilsdon, and uh, then moved to America and has had 10 years over in America, again, releasing books and uh, releasing essays and teaching in NYU, 
And when we spoke, it was early lockdown and um, there was so much tumult going on in the world. Absolutely extraordinary times that we were living in. Zadie Smith wrote six personal powerful essays called Intimations, exploring ideas and questions around the new reality and the things it made you reflect on, including socialism and the dangers of individualism. We spoke to Zadie when she had just moved back from New York when Trump was still president, back to her home city of London. So we'll cut back in there when she talks about her reaction to coming back to the UK from America. I was close to tears, first of all, at the existence of things like Radio 1 Extra, which always makes me brings me close to tears, sentimental. Yeah. Like, oh, someone's bothered to make a radio station for me, <laughs> for free? Why have they done this? And then I was in the park complaining about homeschooling and mum said, oh, just go on the BBC website. They have like oh, yeah. classes for every day. And it's so long since I've been in England, I, yeah. I almost couldn't get my head around the concept of someone is someone gives a shit about me yeah. for free and is going to provide something that I don't have to pay for. <laughs> so for, for about a few weeks, it was just towards the end of school, we did the BBC classes every day yeah. and it was like a hallelujah. Yeah. Well, you know, when you lose these things, you see what they're worth. It's really extraordinary. So have you learned anything about yourself in this time? Obviously, we've seen some of it in the in the essays, but is there stuff that you'll take away from this whole episode, this whole chaos, and, and, and kind of keep with you as a lesson that you have learned about yourself? I think it's something I knew a little bit before, but um, I don't know if it's about myself exactly, but it's about the nature of reality, which yeah. is, I mean, every 18-year-old will tell you that, that media constructs reality. You say it as a kind of a commonplace when you switch countries like that on the sudden, you, you see how true it is. It, it's the same disease, it's the same problem confronting us, but reality is constructed entirely differently in the American television, on American radio, and so in American life. I just realised how, how much of what I thought I felt, or what was germane particularly to me, is constantly a construction of what I see, watch and take in. And so I, I guess when I got back here, I was just felt even more determined with whatever life we have rest in front of us, our 20 or 30 years, that I'm going to try and uh, not let my reality be mediated so much. You know, it sounds so cheesy, but I want to live. Mm. And I don't, I don't want to uh, waste any time living in, in these constructions, particularly, I guess, the online ones. I just, I just don't want it at all I mean you already don't have a smartphone deliberately to not be sucked into the world of social media and stuff right it wasn't it wasn't particularly deliberate I just right you know I didn't get one and then it was too late and then I, I think about it more like knowing that you're an addictive person knowing me right. that looked like a bad idea <laughs> that's the best <laughs> way I can put it it's the same way I feel about heroin I'm like yes yeah, just about to say it's like well, I like try I like yeah. all of I like drugs but when I was young I thought that one I'll give it a miss <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel about the phones I'll just yeah. give it a miss yeah and also you probably had enough time watching the world adapt to social media to know that you don't want to get into it as well like you're you're outside of it you have a, a, a perspective of it that other people don't have unless they stay off their phones for more than a month which is rare. yeah I mean, it is it is funny when you're not in it because what becomes more and more obvious, I know it's such a dull thing to say, is that it is a behaviour modification experiment. Mm. And, and people have been modified mm. really severely. People I've known all my life are not the same. They don't talk the same way. 
they don't think the same way. It's weird when people don't notice they're doing it, but in, in normal human conversation, they speak a bit like the algorithm. You know, they dunk on people, they speak in these little pithy sentences, and when you're not in it, it's like talking to an alien. Yeah. It can be really, uh, it's like <laughs> the body snatchers or something. Yeah. But of course, because everybody's in it, you're the freak, really. I'm the freak, I guess, in this context. But but it is, I, I like remembering what the world was before 2008. I think somebody should remember, mm. just to have some consistency. Because uh, any technology that pretends to be um, natural, permanent, inevitable unavoidable is disguising an ideological uh, argument mm. there's nothing natural or inevitable about this about this particular form of the technology the technology itself is great it's great that we're talking to each other it's great that i can you know see a cousin in ghana or you know these things are great but the yeah. particular forms these monopolies there is a better internet to come i believe and i'm I'll, I'll be excited to join it when it arrives. Tell me about um, your thoughts about your chosen places to live. Um, I, I think a lot of people in lockdown, one of the things that seemed to come out of this whole thing was making people be forced to kind of confront the essence of their desires and their needs and their wants in their lives and, and and ultimately there's big changes off the back of that you know moving house or getting divorced or whatever right. H- have you thought about where where you live has that has it yeah. changed the way you want to you know you're talking about wanting to just live has it made you think more about the, London and New York in that way it made me want to be home for sure home being London yeah home being London yeah. around my family around my friends yeah um and and within a construction that, even if I don't always agree with it, is familiar to me, rather than the kind of funhouse reality that has taken over uh, stateside. But I don't know, it's quite like, I guess the, the line between me and my husband, he's from the country, I'm from the city, and the city means a lot to me. I love cities. I never thought, I don't I don't want to live anywhere else. But his love of nature... Mm that started to make a tiny bit of sense to me. <laughs> but I mean, it's still the nature in London is more than enough nature for me. But but I I understood what he meant about um, being close to that kind of time, not the time of computers, not the time of work or the time of culture, but the time of trees, for example. Mm. All of that I found, maybe it's just a primal thing. I think a lot of people felt that way. The rate that people are running off to live in Oxfordshire, it seems to seems There's to There's a lot of houses for sale in Queen's Park, that's for sure. Yeah, that's what I hear. But for, for me, a chestnut tree on Salisbury Road is just fine. I can stare, but I find myself staring at them longer. Yeah, I'm more involved with them. There's such a lovely kind of um, assortment of local people that we meet throughout your essays. Um, in New York, Ben the Masseuse, Myron, Barbara, who I loved. How did it feel... Um, how did it feel leaving leaving those people? It feels to me like those people are the kind of they are the fabric of your existence in New York. New York is the, about the people, right? It is that's why you're you're there. Right. How did it feel kind of moving away for this? It's it's a little traumatizing. I really love New York. I really love the people, but not for the the kind of people I'm writing about who are embedded New Yorkers. But for me, floating above New York, working at a university, I just became more and more aware that whatever 
illusion mm. that people like me had in New York that somehow this presidency was going to be a containable disaster was uh, revealed as a delusion, you know, and a self-serving delusion. I wanted to believe that. All the things New Yorkers tell each other, oh, we're, we're not America, we're a separate entity, we're an island, we're, mm. you know, it's all bullshit. <laughs> it's not true. It's one country and... Sure. When a person like that becomes president, mm. it, it's a disaster without end. And not just him, but the fact that he was able to become president was the disaster. He's, he, you know, he's just a kind of empty bag of hot air. But the, the feelings that put him there are, are America. You know, they're there. And just because we're running around New York with our mm. lefty friends having a good time, it had nothing to do with what was really going on. Um, did it feel like a relief coming back to the state of Britain right now? I mean, that's saying a lot about America. It is. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the things, it's not that I know, I'm not sentimental about England, but the structures that we built post-war are still, though they're very frayed at the edges, they still exist. And coming from the land of the free you can't believe how extraordinary they look from BBC Bite Size Lessons mm. <laughs> to the telly and radio to the state schools. <laughs> it, it all looks like a miracle yeah. to me. I mean, I always appreciated when I grew up in it, but right now it looks like a miracle. And that part I'm just incredibly grateful for. The thought of like September comes and my kids going to the local school at Salisbury, you know that school, yeah, and, do, yeah. and being in classes in which children are, you know, mixed with everybody. It doesn't exist in New York City. It doesn't, but not even in a, not even a comprehensive school. How is that so? No, because the neighbourhoods are segregated. Right. Parents work very hard to make those barriers as narrow as possible around their schools. Yeah. So you can go to schools that are entirely white, entirely Chinese, entirely black. It... it the schools in New York are segregated as they were in the 50s. Mm. It's a disgrace, you know. Yeah. Um, so that really makes me happy, mm. you know. Some things still exist here, structures which make life, um, you know, tolerable for me. To find a similar school in New York is it's like a, a performance that without end. And here mm. it's just at the end mm. of the road and at the end of many roads throughout yeah. the city. One of the things you said in the book was that COVID tested your physical and moral cowardice. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean, I guess I know I don't have any physical bravery <laughs> that's that's not a big surprise <laughs> to me um you're not a black belt in karate no. then okay. um you know it was interesting because part first of all you had to work out what was brave was it brave to stay in in my case in a building of like two thousand people many yeah. of them old what's best like you could see everybody telling themselves myself included the story they wanted to tell themselves right but i guess for me i was aware of telling the story I needed to tell myself and also particularly what what being in a family does 
it creates so many different kinds of mm. political and personal compromise. And that interested me. Like, how, how do you continue to be a part of a broader struggle and believe in a broader struggle when you have this immediate thing in front of you, these children, whose first demand is that you mm. help them and keep them alive and all the rest of it? I don't, I don't have an answer to it, but I was just aware of, of that conflict in a lot of people and that larger versions of that conflict, you know, from everything from school choice to healthcare and on and on in every part of society, basically is the enemy of the revolution. <laughs> this constant thought that, yes, yes, yeah. but what about my clan? So it just it made me think, how can we create a politics which allows people to do this instinctive thing, protect supposedly their family, their clan, and not do damage. Because in the American system, at least, there, there, it's only, it creates only damage, you know. That obsessive individualism, you really mm. felt it in New York, that whatever kind of communal space that was meant to happen in an emergency was just not there. There was nothing to support it. People created it, like really amazing people, created volunteer groups and but they did it all themselves the people there was no there was no sense of a wider support you talk about the in the american exception essay about clement attlee um who who i did not know yeah. about um so i learned that um about him being the leader of the opposition against winston churchill right. um remind me what he said again i don't i can't remember what he said about people basically people winning the war it was people that won the war yeah right because there were two different arguments going on. When Churchill won, there was a kind of Tory, home counties, um, upper class idea of kind of heroism, like leave it, leave it in our hands. We've won this thing. Let us continue. <laughs> and I, I notice in England that that narrative has a, you know, a lot of space is still given to it, even though that's not actually what happened. The country itself revolted against this patrician attitude en masse and created... Mm a series of extraordinarily large institutions, not least of which the National Health Service, um, which transformed England. I mean, they, it transformed Britain. And uh, I'm really interested in that period, not because it was a perfect world, but because it was such a messy, grimy mix of activism, the vote, political will, public consciousness. Like, to me, that's how change happens. It's, it doesn't, you can't put it in 140 characters and it might sound dull, or like liberalism or whatever the kids think it is. But but if you were subject to that change, if you were no longer like, say, my father was in 1928, you know, two years old with no outhouse, with no hope of a secondary education, with no hope of health care, it made a big fucking difference. Yeah. These lives were transformed. And to me, that model of social justice, though, it will need a lot of you know, tinkering and transformation is sample of the best we've ever managed. Mm. <laughs> Even if it wasn't much, it's better than everything else. It totally is. And, and it's interesting seeing that because you see that from obviously the perspective of living outside of it as well. Right. I need to find the quote, I can't remember, but he kind of, he talks about this utopian situation that if people realise that it's not about private interests, it's about the people, right. that, you know, we could have a society that was you know, efficient and worked. Right. Do you think that's possible to achieve? I don't know, man. I'm just a novelist. <laughs> but I know, I know it did happen and it involved 
serious coalition politics. Yeah. Involved the white working classes and what are now called BAME people are <laughs> 500th name in this country uh, uh, in coalition with each other. Working class women and middle class women in coalition with each other. It, it takes a broad church to make something like that happen. So there has to be a will for sure. Thank you so much to Zadie Smith. Such an interesting perspective on things the pandemic did and still continues to highlight so many differences in class and how people are impacted by the situation or treated differently. It's an ongoing conversation. What was that saying? We are all in the same storm, not the same boat. I'm glad to know there are some people who don't have smartphones too. What a life that must be. As with Jamar, you can hear the full Zadie Smith episode. The link is in the show notes. And if you just love listening to writers talk, we've had some incredible writers on changes over the years. Douglas Stewart, Sinead Gleeson, Roddy Doyle, Nakesh Shukla. So many brilliant authors. So do go and, and check them out. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, rate the podcast, leave a review where you can. It's always so appreciated. This episode is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. And we will see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.